said, we get to dive into a brand new series today. We are calling this Convictions, subtitle, What We Believe. Uh, and so what we're going to do over the next few weeks is we're going to work through our statement of faith. In fact, when you came in, you probably saw this in your seat. This is here as a resource to you. We are not giving this to you, so you spend the next 20 minutes reading through every word of this. Uh, in fact, please don't do that. You can take it home and read through it if you like. In fact, I'd encourage you to do that. Because um, what we believe is important. Uh, we believe that the Bible is true. In fact, we're going to talk about the Bible uh, a little later on in the series. Uh, but we believe that the Bible contains what we call objective truth. And in other words, uh, the Bible says things that are true for everybody and true in every situation. Uh, and so the Bible gives us information that we need to apply to our lives. And so we've broken our statement of faith down into to nine statements. We've had a few different versions of this down through the years, um, and we keep kind of whittling it down to, to, to what's most important, to what's most essential. So these nine statements, we'll take a week on each of these uh, through the series and get to dig into them. What do we believe about X? So today in part one, we're going to talk about what we believe about God called the series Convictions because we want you to have a conviction that these things are true. We don't just hope these things are true. This isn't just our perception of who God is. This isn't the God that makes sense to me or that works for me. This is who God actually is. This is what God has actually declared about himself, and this is essential and important for us. Now, the danger here, uh, there, there's a couple of dangers here. One of the dangers is that we just tune out because we're talking about theology and this stuff maybe isn't the most exciting. This stuff maybe is a little bit boring. Maybe we feel like, hey, we've been around. We've grown up in church our whole life. We know all this stuff. Can, can I encourage you right here on the front end and warn you on the front end, don't turn your brain off. Uh, because this stuff matters. In fact, I'll be really honest and direct with you up front. That is a, a desire from the enemy. He wants you to turn your brain off to this. He wants you to say, man, this stuff isn't for me. I don't need to worry about this. I've already got it mastered. I don't care. What does this stuff have to do with me? He wants us to immediately just kind of shut down when we talk about theology. The reality is we have a lazy generation. Right? Can, can I just be real honest? Man, we are a lazy generation in a million different ways, right? Uh, one of the ways is we are lazy theologically. And so I'm going to encourage you and challenge you over the next few weeks to exercise some spiritual muscles that might be a little weak, that might be a little atrophied right now, that might not have been used for a while. And what happens when you start using muscles you haven't used for a while? You might get a little sore. Right, you, you might not like me for a little bit. If you ever get back in the gym and you have a personal trainer, like you hate that person uh, for, for a while. So I'm gonna go ahead and give you permission. You can hate me, all right? You can just hate me the next few weeks, but listen to me because I truly believe this stuff matters. I wouldn't be challenging you to take these steps if I didn't care about your soul, if I didn't truly want what's best for you. And so if it hurts a little bit, if this is a little hard, if, if your mind starts to wander, I wanna empower you on the front end, man, 
put that thing back in line, take authority over it. You're in charge. You're in control. No, I'm going to lean in. I'm going to learn. I'm going to get everything that God wants me to get out of this because he matters and he's worth it. Amen? Amen. So today we're going to talk about what we believe about God. So what we're going to do for each of these points is we're going to start with just the paragraph from our statement of faith, and then we're going to dig into some pieces of it. Now, the reality is we don't even have time to dig into every statement fully within the statement of faith. So we're not going to get into every aspect of this paragraph. I actually started trying to do that, and if I'd have done that, we'd be in this series all year long. Uh, so, so I'm not going to do that to you. I'm going to pull some stuff out of the statement of faith that I think is most essential and most key, and we'll dig into each. But we'll start by reading the paragraph. So number one, about God. God is the creator and ruler of the universe. Can we say amen to that? He has eternally existed in three personalities. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. These three are co-equal and are one God with God the Father first amongst equals. And then we have there a number of verses uh, to reference the statements made here. Now, most of these statements are you, you can show a whole lot of verses to justify them. Um, this is just kind of a sampling and a selection. So the same thing, I started out trying to go through every verse in this statement of faith in today's message, and I realized that that was going to take too long for us to dig through all of them. So we're just going to use a sampling of these verses uh, and, and dive into a sampling of these statements. So let's start with the beginning. God is the creator of the universe. Now, if you have any concept of God, this one's probably fairly easy, right? We start there. In fact, most of you have been in church long enough, have been around church long enough. You can probably reference, if not quote, the first, book of, or first verse of the Bible, which says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? So in the beginning, Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth. From the very start, God was a creator. This is, he existed before the beginning. He's before the beginning, which is difficult for us to grasp sometimes. Uh, but he made it all. And so everything comes from God, and everything ultimately goes back to God. So life comes from God. And ultimately, all of us will appear before God at the end of our physical life. My, we talked last week and the week before about giving and about serving and about sowing seed. And I want to encourage you, if you haven't yet turned in that serving card, man if, uh, man, if God has laid it on your heart to get involved, we would love to have you get involved and participate in what God's doing here at City Church. You can turn that in at any of our giving stations uh, over the next few weeks. But... Everything we do is for him. It goes back to him. So we give out of our first fruits. We serve out of our first fruits. We worship out of our first fruits, right? It's why we worship on the first day of the week. It's why we give the first 10%. Like everything comes from him, so we want to give back to him at the beginning. It's why it's good to spend time with God in the morning. It's why we fast in January, right? All of these principles go back to he started it all. It all comes from him, and it all goes back to him. Now, God's creative nature is one of my favorite things about him. 
Uh, I love that God is creator. I love marveling on him as creator. In fact, this summer, my family's uh, going to get to take kind of a bucket list road trip, and, and I get to take my family back to Seattle, Washington, where I'm from. They have never been. I'm the only one in, in my household who's been to my hometown, so I get to take them and, and show it off, and we're going to get to go to a bunch of national parks along the way and see a lot of just amazing stuff that God has made. And I'm so looking forward to this summer because I'm going to get to, again, marvel at God as creator. Talking to a couple guys this morning who are going fishing after church. Uh, they get to get out in nature. It's 21 degrees when church started. Uh, and they are going ice fishing, I guess now. Uh, but they're going fishing today. Uh, why? Because there's something about getting out in God's creation. There's something about interacting with the stuff that God has made. I think especially in our generation, because we spend so much time interacting with man-made stuff, with screens, and with technology, and with stuff that, that we've manufactured, there is power in just experiencing what God made. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I could spend a whole sermon talking about God the creator. I won't do that today because uh, it's not the most important thing we want to get into, but it is the first. God is creator of the universe. Secondly, it says that God is creator and he is ruler of the universe. So not only did God create, God now sits ultimately on the throne. I want to show you a passage in 1 Chronicles 29, which, again, there, there are many passages we could turn to which affirm that God is ruler of all. But we'll use this example. King David is worshiping God in the, the temple, in the, or in the tabernacle. The temple didn't exist yet. In the presence of God's people, in the presence of the assembly. And he says this. He says, praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel from everlasting to everlasting. So we're going to talk a minute about God is eternal. So he says, hey, you are everlasting past to everlasting in the future. You are from everlasting to everlasting. He says, yours, Lord, is the greatness. Everybody say greatness. greatness. So we believe that we get to worship God for two things. We worship God's greatness, which is his surpassing attributes. It's his creativity, his faithfulness, right? All the things about God that, that we can't match that we can't touch. So we worship his greatness. We also worship his goodness. So God could be great and not good, or he could be good and not great, but by God's grace, he is both. So we get to worship him for his greatness and his goodness. So he says, yours is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. So he just starts throwing out words, right? He just starts, man, everything I can think of, it's your great and your splendor and your majesty. And he's just going off, worshiping his God. He says, for everything, everybody say everything. Everything, everything in heaven and on earth is yours. It's all his, right? It all belongs to him. That's why I can serve him and sacrifice my time for him because it's his time anyway. That's why I can give to him and sacrifice my treasure for him because it's all his anyway. That's why I can use my talent for him because it's all his anyway. It all belongs to him. Everything is yours. He says, yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. So he's above Everything. Next verse, in verse 12, it tells us this. Wealth and honor come from you. Why? For you are the ruler of all things. 
right? He's the ruler of people. He's the ruler of animals. He's the ruler of mountains. He's the ruler of seas. He's the ruler of planets. He's the ruler of galaxies. If there are multiple universes, then I don't think there are, but he's the ruler of them too, right? Like he is the ruler of all. Anything we can conceive, anything that exists, he's the ruler of it. It says, in your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. He is ruler of all. He is creator of all. There's a principle that I learned years ago, I don't know, at least 10 years ago, that, that, that I think is so applicable here and so important for us to grasp. And that principle is this, is that the author has the authority. I used to teach young people this, uh, our, our 662, our youth ministry, our 6th through 12th graders, they just started Battle of the Sexes. Uh, they, they have a, a, every February, they spend, uh, man, with guys against girls and all kinds of competitions and, and having a blast and, and teaching on sex and what does the Bible teach about purity and about holiness and about righteousness in these areas and how to honor God and glorify God in our body. And so what I used to teach teenagers and I think is so true really for all of us is one of these questions will come up a lot of times is like, well, why does God care about sex? Why does God care what I do with my body, right? Like doesn't, maybe that seems kind of weird that, that God has an opinion about what I do with my body. One thing that's real big in our generation is this concept of body autonomy, right? That I, I do what I want with my body. And, and we certainly need to respect that as far as things like consent and, and those types of things. And, but, but it goes beyond that, that ultimately God tells me what to do with my body because he knows what's good for me. Right, he designed it. So illustration that I used to use with young people is, is imagine if someone, and this was, this was before this was actually a thing, it's actually a thing now. Now we have guys like Elon Musk and, and Jeff Bezos who have enough money that they can actually like build spaceships and go into outer space for themselves, right? So I used to use this hypothetically, this is how old I am, uh, but, but it's actually happening. Uh, so, so imagine you invented a spaceship. Uh, that the average person could use, right? This per- you, could, you could just go by and instead of just going down to the car lot, you could go down to the spaceship lot. Maybe one day this will actually happen. I don't know. Uh, but you go get the spaceship, uh, and the spaceship is capable of, of going however many thousands of miles per hour, right? Um, but the creator says, hey, I need you to keep it here. That, that if you go beyond this speed, bad things can happen. So what's going to happen if this happens? Well, somebody, probably a teenager, is going to figure out how to take that governor off and find out what this thing can really do, right? Probably a teenager from the south, probably a redneck. Uh, find, let, let, let's see what this thing's really capable of. Uh, and what's ultimately going to happen? They're going to go out in a blaze of glory, right? They're going to blow up. They're going to crash. They're going to bring destruction into their lives, Because they didn't listen to the one who created the thing. What happens when I use my body in a way that God didn't design for me to use it is I bring destruction into my life. It's not that God doesn't want me to have fun. It's not that God doesn't want me to enjoy things. God created sex. I know some of you are like, whoa, they're talking about sex. God, God, God wants you to be blessed. He designed it to be pleasurable, but he designed it to be done in a certain context where it brings blessing into your life and not destruction. 
And why can God tell me what to do with my body? Because he's the author, he has the authority. Why is he the ruler? He's the ruler because he's the creator. Those are not two separate statements. They are joined statements. God has the authority to tell me what to do in my life because he knows what's going to bring blessing into my life. Pastor Braden's illustration for our offering talk is so simple and so brilliant. Do we trust him? It's one thing to say that he's God. Do we trust him as God to be the ruler? To say, no, that's not for you. That's not for now. That's not for this season. Trust me. This is where faith comes in. The author has the authority. So he's the creator. He's the ruler. Then it tells us that he eternally exists. God eternally exists. David in Chronicles said, you're from everlasting to everlasting. All right, eternity is one of those concepts that we'll never completely grasp. If you try to understand eternity, you're just going to make yourself frustrated. It doesn't make sense to us that anyone or anything can exist into eternity past, that there is no beginning, that he just always has been. That's a weird statement. That's a difficult statement for us. What is that? That's something we have to accept by faith. You can, you can study it. You can gaze in it. You can ponder on it. You can meditate on it. You're never going to completely understand it, at least not on this side of heaven. I think a day comes. The Bible says right now we know in part, but one day we'll know fully. So I think on the other side of eternity, there's going to be something that happens, a transformation in us where our finiteness, our limitations are lifted, and all of a sudden, this mind-blowing stuff doesn't blow our mind anymore. It just makes sense. Right now, we have to receive this by faith. God eternally exists. Psalm 90 verse 2 puts it this way. It says, before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, again, from everlasting to everlasting. That same phrase, you are God, he exists eternally. He does no beginning. He was not created. Now, this can be a really hard thing. This can be something that causes us to stumble, right? Well, how can someone exist eternally? And the best way I've ever heard this put is ultimately it comes down to where are you going to put your faith? Because if we go all the way back, whether we go back scientifically or whether we go back spiritually, there's a declaration of faith that something existed before anything. If we go back and see the, the, build, the Big Bang, what does science teach? That, that all matter in the universe was contained in, in an area smaller than a period on a page and that some sort of force acted on that matter and boom, there was this Big Bang and planets came out and stars came out and everything was flung out, but science can't tell you where that matter came from. So the reality is whether we choose faith or we choose science, and I don't think faith and science are opposites, by the way. I believe science defines for us how God did things. I think science teaches us, man, the laws that God created in his universe. Uh, so we don't have to treat science as the enemy. I think science should be embraced. Uh, but the reality is whichever way we look at it, there's going to be something we can't comprehend. And so for me, I'd rather put my faith in God who pre-existed than matter that pre-existed. I think that explanation makes a lot more sense. I think it's a lot more peaceful. 
uh, I think it gives a lot more meaning and purpose and fulfillment. So for me, I receive God as a God who eternally exists. It goes on then to say that God eternally exists in three personalities. You think eternity will blow your mind. Now we're going to talk about the Trinity. He eternally exists in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, now the Trinity is something that, again, if, if you've grown up in church, you've been around this enough, you, you probably receive this without spending a lot of time thinking about it. Always believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, when you really start to dig into the Trinity, it makes your brain hurt. Okay, when, when you really start to understand how can three entities eternally coexist as one, and the Bible very clearly says that there are three and very clearly says that there are one, and that just doesn't make mathematical sense. Uh, but the reality is we receive this again as something that's beyond our comprehension, beyond our understanding. Now, there's some things that people will throw out there to, to argue with the Trinity. First of all is that the word Trinity never appears in the Bible. Uh, so, so the Bible never says there is a trinity. The trinity is a man-made word to describe a biblical concept. So even though the word trinity isn't in the Bible, what the word trinity describes is very much in the Bible. Again and again, the Bible teaches us that there, God exists in three persons and three personalities, and yet he is eternally one. And this is really, really difficult to grasp. You may have tried to see people come up with illustrations for this, and I used to use the illustration uh, when I was a, a youth pastor to try to make sense of it, and the reality is anytime we, we use an illustration for it, we, we end up teaching something that's not true by implication, uh, because this is something that we can't define. Uh, it, it's something that, that exceeds our understanding, so why does it matter? Why does it matter to believe in the Trinity, especially the Bible doesn't even use the word Trinity. Well, what happens is if we miss the understanding of the Trinity, we get into a lot of dangerous places. Uh, we, we lead, it leads to a lot of what we would call historical heresies. And heresy is like a scary word, right? Like the, the Catholic Church used to condemn heretics and put them to death. So we're not saying that, hey, if somebody has one of these false beliefs that they should be put to death, we're, we're, we're not like out exercising capital punishment on people who see these things differently or wrongly. But at the same time, here's why it matters, church, and I need you to hear me on this. When we teach or believe things about God that are not true, it becomes harder for us to know him. The reason why theology matters, the reason why doctrine matters, is God desperately wants you to know him. He desperately wants you to have relationship with him. And when we teach things that are not true, what we do is we build barriers between God's people and God. We make it harder for them to get to him. And so this may seem so, so elementary. It may seem so dry and so unimportant. But understand the enemy wants to make us not care about this stuff. Because he wants to come in and he wants to give us as much false understanding of God is as possible. Because the more that we misbelieve about him, the more that we miss about him. 
Do you hear me, church? The more we misbelieve about him, the more of him that we miss. And God doesn't want you to miss him. He wants you to access all of his goodness, all of his grace. Now, there's aspects of this that we're never fully going to get on this side of heaven, but that doesn't mean we don't pursue, we don't chase, we don't go after the best possible understanding. So let's talk about the Trinity for just a little bit. First of all, let me give you one text that demonstrates the Trinity. This one is actually uh, in our New Through 30 reading. If you're finishing up New Through 30, we are almost there, uh, reading through the New Testament in 30 days. Some of you are like breathing a sigh of relief. Uh, Man, when we're done reading through the, the New Testament, don't just check out of the Bible, right? We're going to stay in the Word, even though you don't have to read eight chapters a day anymore. Um, but 2 Corinthians 13, well, we read this, uh, I think, at the end of last week, says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, that being God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So we see all three persons of the Trinity specifically cited by Paul. And we see this a, a number of places. We see this at Jesus' baptism. We see the Trinity evident in, in a number of places in Jesus' conversation in John 14, 15, and 16 with his disciples. Um, there, there, there are many places in Scripture that specifically list out each person of the Trinity separately in one verse. Um, but our teaching says this, that the Trinity are co-equal and one God with God the Father first among equals. So they're equal Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Father are equal, and yet God is first among equals. That, that's a really hard thing for us as Americans because we believe in equality, right? Because we believe that everybody is equal, and so the idea of first among equals just doesn't line up with our Americanness. Uh, and again, these are concepts that are a little bit beyond our full grasping. But the Bible teaches that the Father is, is the ultimate authority, and yet Jesus and the Holy Spirit are fully God, have the same rights, the same authority as the Father does. came across a quote this week that I want to share with you uh, from a theologian named David F. Wells talking about the Trinity. I think this is brilliant, and, and, and I love this. He says, this much is certain. Had the Christian faith merely been a human invention... Christians would have never come up with the doctrine of the Trinity. The tr doctrine is too thorny to understand and too difficult to explain for anyone to have deliberately fabricated it, right? Like this is just too deep. It's too complex. You would never make this up. Uh, he says, there is no other religion that has anything remotely like this. This is one of the very strong distinctives of Christianity. He says, no, this is not the fruit of our imagination, but a doctrine of the way things are. God is triune. He, he, he infers something here about the Trinity that I think is an even bigger point um, that, that we need to understand as we go through some of the stuff. I'm glad we have a God that is too compliment, complicated for me to comprehend. I'm glad that I can't understand everything about him. Right? I'm, I'm glad that everything that he is is not breakable into a formula of X, Y, Z. I love that I have a God that, that I've known now for almost 40 years. And as I've gotten to know him better and better, I realize there's more and more that I don't know. It's one of the beautiful things about marriage, by the way. 
right? You marry someone because you love them, and then you realize, hey, I don't know a whole lot about this person, right? Uh, Most husbands can identify. You learn new things about your wife all the time, right? Uh, Every day. Uh, I think wives would probably say the same thing about us. Uh, It's a beautiful thing. I'm glad that when I, I said my I do's in 2009, that wasn't all there was to Melody, that, that, that all of a sudden I knew everything there was to know. I'm glad that we get to grow in our understanding of one another and grow in our relationship. And I'm also glad that I didn't fully comprehend Jesus the day that I received salvation. I'm glad that he revealed enough of himself to me that I could see he was good and he was worth giving my life to, but I'm also glad that he's constantly revealing more and teaching me more, that God is beyond my full understanding and comprehension. And so the Trinity could not be manufactured by man. It's too deep, too complicated, too incomprehensible. So I told you there's danger if we teach the Trinity wrong, if we get this wrong. So there's been some some very famous historical heresies that go way back into like the 300 and 400 AD that that continue to pop up in new generations. I want to share a couple of them with you of ways that the Trinity gets distorted and gets twisted. One of them is called modalism. Modalism. Modalism is the idea that God is one and he appears in three forms. So here's how modalism would illustrate itself. The idea of, of water, right? That we have water uh, that appears in a liquid form as water, appears in a solid form as ice, and appears in a gaseous form as a vapor. And that, that God appears sometimes as Jesus the Son. He appears sometimes as God the Father. He appears sometimes as the Holy Spirit. He takes on different modes, but he's just one God. Sometimes interacts with us as a son, sometimes interacts with us as a father, sometimes interacts with us as a spirit. Now, this sounds really good. The problem is it's just not what the Bible teaches. Uh, The Bible teaches that God is three distinct individuals who interact with each other. And so for the Holy Spirit to interact with the Father, for Jesus to send the Holy Spirit, for the Father to send the Son, they have to be distinct individuals. They have to be separate. So modalism fleshes in our generation in in a couple of denominations, and I use that word even loosely, Um, but Unitarians believe in a form of modalism, uh, probably more commonly known. Pentecostal oneness believes in a form of uh, of modalism that they, they teach Oneness, God is one. In fact, I remember the first time I ever encountered anybody from the oneness faith, um, we were uh, on a youth group trip, actually. I was probably, I don't know, ninth grade, 10th grade. And we were in Florida, and and some people came up, and they asked us, uh, in whose name were we baptized? Uh, And we're like, right? Like, teenagers were like, I don't know whose name was I baptized in. And uh, anyway, their thing was that if we were baptized in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that we weren't really saved. That the only way to be saved is to be baptized into the name of Jesus Christ, uh, and that he is the one. Uh, and, and the Bible has places where they're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Bible has places where they're baptized in the name of Jesus. And so I don't think your salvation is defined by which name you were baptized into. Right now, obviously, if you're baptized in, into the name of Confucius, that's a different thing. Uh, that, that, that's not going to bring salvation. Uh, but 
we, we get hung up on, on little things, uh, but modalism teaches that God is one at the expense of God being three. Another common heresy is called Arianism. Arianism uh, is, I think, even a little more dangerous because it sounds even a little more accurate. It teaches that God created Jesus and that Jesus created everything else. So Jesus is over all, but he is still a created being. So, that, so, so it teaches that Jesus is exalted. Jesus is greater than us. Jesus is king. We should worship Jesus, but it still teaches that God is, is greater than Jesus, that Jesus is a created being. And if we're going to accept what the Bible teaches, what the Bible teaches about Jesus is that in the beginning was the Word, the Word being Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. In other words, Jesus is eternally existent. He wasn't created by the Father. The Holy Spirit wasn't created by the Father. They are all three eternal. So why does Arianism matter? Well, Arianism fleshes out in a couple of modern day, again, you could use the word denominations, but I would use that very loosely. Um, one is Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that, that Jesus is a lesser God. In fact, they would read, they, they insert an extra word into John. They say, in the beginning was the word, and the word was, God, was with God, and the word was a God. One letter. Change the, the Bible by one letter, and it completely changes the meaning that Jesus was a God, but he was not the ultimate God. Again, why does this stuff matter? Because when we misrepresent who God is, we cause people to miss God. When we teach Jesus as something less than the word of God teaches, it causes us to miss who he truly is. We miss relationship with him. We miss understanding him. Another one is the Mormon faith. The Mormon faith is, is really complicated and, and really different, but ultimately what Mormonism teaches is that Jesus uh, was, was created by God and that Jesus lived a perfect life and became a God. Uh, and so that we can worship him because he lived a perfect life and that we're supposed to follow his example. And if we live a perfect life, we'll become gods too. And one day we'll get our own planet to rule over and, and wild stuff. Um, I got a whole lot of family members who are Mormon. My dad was raised Mormon. Uh, and so I, I, I've seen uh, the lack of understanding of who Jesus really is. See, it's, 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 it's just a minor thing. It seems so insignificant. Who cares if we get this stuff wrong? But what happens is we lead people astray. We lead them on a path to meet somebody who isn't really Jesus. And so we've got to fight to get this stuff right. Ultimately, I would say this. God is too complex for us to fully understand, yet he is so accessible as to be knowable by a child. So you'll spend your whole lifetime trying to fully grasp who he is, yet you can get to know him at three years old. Right? In fact, he tells us the best way to get to know him is as a child. That if we're going to begin relationship with him, if we're going to start to know him, we actually have to come to him with faith like a child. The Bible puts it this way in Isaiah, or excuse me, in Matthew 18. It says, he called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, (coughs) 
excuse me, you will never inherit the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. He says, if we're going to come to him, we've got to have faith like a child. I got three kids, most of you know, a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and a two-year-old. And we just got a new kitten this week uh, added to the family. Uh, And she is terrified of all of us, and she's been hiding out. Uh, And so last night we couldn't find her uh, because she's small and she can get anywhere, and she's a cat, right? She's flexible. Uh, And Judah is distraught. Like, he is so worried about this cat. He got out of bed, like, three times last night. Like, I just can't stop thinking about Curly. Uh, just very, very upset. And so I said, well, what do you think we can do, buddy? He's like, well, we can go look for her. I was like, yeah, we ain't going to find her. Uh, if a cat doesn't want to be found, they're not going to be found. Cat, it's like, she is the Southern hide-and-seek champion. She wins. Uh, she, just give her the trophy. Uh, so I said, well, we can pray. And so my my seven-year-old sat on my bed last night and prayed like the most earnest, heartfelt prayer for this kitten that we would find this cat uh, and that he would be able to sleep, that he could have peace, even if we can't find this cat, to trust that God has her under control. It's cute. It's easy to laugh at. But there's something beautiful about the faith of a kid right? He doesn't have all the baggage. He doesn't have all the hang-ups. He doesn't have all the questions. He, he hasn't been burned by life. And so when you tell him God's looking out for this kitten, he receives it open-heartedly. Yes, God cares about my kitten. God made Curly. He knows where Curly is, and he's going to take care of her, right? And so that's what God's calling for from us. That we'd set aside the baggage, the hang-ups, the hurts, the doubts, the times where where we felt like God didn't come through, the times where we didn't understand what was going on. And just say, God, I choose to believe. I choose to trust what you say. I'm accepting this with faith like a child. Sometimes we got to pray for that kind of faith. Sometimes we got to fight for that kind of faith. Because we've been through some stuff. we got some scars. we got some baggage. But Jesus says, whoever takes the lowly position of this child. Now, when he says lowly position of this child, 2,000 years ago, the culture was, man, you, you think you grew up in the generation where kids were seen but not heard? Like, that, that they were devalued. They didn't have significance in that culture. And so he was insulting the adults by saying, you need to be like a kid. But he's saying there's something beautiful about this child's faith, man. That's why I love the people who serve so much in Kid City. You're building my kid's faith. Thank you for pouring into that child. Thank you for for building that. Man, pray for our teachers today because I'm sure they heard all about our cat all day long. Uh, They're going to be ready to get home and not talk about Curly. I'm sorry to each of you in advance. I would lastly say this. God knows you, and he wants to be known by you. That's why all this stuff matters. He wants to be known 
by you. He wants relationship with you. It's why he created Adam and Eve and, and spent time with them in the garden. It's why for thousands of years he created a plan for restoration for us to be rightfully reunited to him. It's why he sent his son to die in our place so we could again be welcome in his presence. The entire story of scripture woven throughout the beginning to the end of this thing is God wants relationship with you. And so we can let this stuff trip us up. We can let this stuff, man, make God seem cold and distant and far away. Or we can allow the tension that some of it doesn't always make sense, that some of it I don't fully comprehend, to increase my appetite to know him more to increase my desire to gaze into his word, to gaze into his beauty, to gaze into his creation, to say, God, I want to know you better. See, I think for so many of us, we've accepted just knowing God at the level that we're at. I know him. I know he's good. I know he comes through, and that's enough. And, man, it's okay to be, to be satisfied with what you have of God, but please don't be content. Man, I've got more than enough God, and I'm grateful for all that I have. And so, yes, on one hand, I should celebrate what I've already received. At the other side, man, I want to be hungry for more. I don't want to settle for where I'm at. God's got more for me to understand. He's got more of his character to reveal to me. He's got more that he wants me to, to grasp of him. And so I want everything God wants for me. Amen? Let me share with you one last quote. Before we close, my favorite theologian, A.W. Tozer, said this. He says, it's a tragic error to imagine a God who is distant, removed, or passive, shrouded in a mysterious cloak of heartless religion. Rather, the God of the scriptures is working constantly to reveal his glory, redeem his people, and draw us to an intimate encounter with his gospel heart. Then he quotes author Tim Stafford in his book, Knowing the Face of God, says this, if the Bible carries one repeated message about God, is that he wants to be known. As we journey through this over the next eight, nine weeks, as we dig into our statement of faith, into our convictions, I don't just want you to get some more information. I don't just want you to have a better understanding and head knowledge of God. What I want is your desire to know God to increase. That God, I want more of who you are. I want more of you evident in my daily life. I want more. So as we close today, would you stand with me, and we're going to pray. And if you want more, more understanding of God, if you want to not be content where you're at, if you want to not be stagnant, not, not complacent, not satisfied, but you want to hunger for more, I want you just to pray for your own knowledge of God for your own desire for him, that God would increase your desire over these next couple of months, these next few weeks, that your hunger to know him and, and who he is and what he's about would increase and that he would meet you at that.